they looked at abuse and trauma as a physical thing less than an emotional and mental thing. Turns out that's not correct. What the ACE study found was that the kids who had the worst life outcomes were the ones that were neglected. And don't get me wrong, kids who were sexually and physically abused definitely suffered adverse effects. But if they were sexually or physically abused, but not neglected, they were almost as a group universally better off than the kids who were just neglected, which is insane to think about. Tucker Max has written four New York Times bestselling books, three that hit number one, which have sold over four and a half million copies worldwide. He's credited with being the originator of the literary genre fratire and is only the fourth writer, along with Malcolm Gladwell, Brene Brown, and Michael Lewis, to have three books on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list at the same time. He's currently living on a ranch in Dripping Springs, Texas with his wife, Veronica, and five children. And I've gotten to know Tucker pretty well over the years, and it's just great to get a chance to be in conversation with him and to hear his journey. I hope you enjoy it. All right, we are here on the Gravity Podcast with Tucker Max. Tucker, thanks for taking the time to do this. It's great to have you here. Of course, thanks for having me, bro. Yes. So, you know, we've gotten to know each other through, I think, maybe Genius Network at first and and now working together and spent some time talking to you personally. And yet, I don't know that I know your your full journey. And, and I know a lot of people uh, out there know you for various things in various ways, but I'm not sure how much you've really shared about the entire journey, which is is really what we like to do here on the podcast is get people to see the full path to the work that you've done, the success you've had. So start me at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about Tucker as a kid and your family and where you're from and, and all those kind of early childhood dynamics. Yeah. So, so I'll cut to the good parts. I had two parents who were just not good at all as parents. They weren't horrible humans, but they were horrible parents. They did a really bad job. And so my childhood was very lonely and very neglect is really, if you had to pick one word to define my childhood, it was neglected, emotionally neglected, not they fed me and they clothed me. And it was like white middle-class neglect, mm. which is very different than, than poverty. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I know plenty of people who grew up like bone shattering poor, mm -hmm. but had parents who were very emotionally in their lives and mm -hmm. pretty healthy. And they'll tell you, man, I feel like I had a great childhood. We didn't even know we were poor, like poverty in assuming you can eat and you're decently clothed and warm. Poverty only feels like poverty relative to others in a status competition. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so like, I didn't suffer any of that stuff mm -hmm. on neglect, right? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. I, I was just talking about this with, I was just, I didn't even tell you this. I don't know if I told you, I was just on Tucker Carlson's show. Like I just filmed yesterday. We <laughs> talked a lot about like this issue. And the thing I told him uh, is my parents actually gave me a gift with their neglect. The gift was that there was two things. One is that I learned early on that the adults didn't know what they were doing yeah. and no one was in charge and no one was coming to save me. Mm. 
That is such a valuable lesson. Now you can teach your kids that lesson in a loving mm-hmm. way, right? Yeah. Like they're still they're still surrounded. Like you don't have to uh, neglect them, to right? Teach them. But but it is still a great lesson that I think a lot of people don't ever learn, or they learn way too late. Mm-hmm. And so I got that intuitively on a deep level very early. And that forced me to be independent and to learn to think for myself and to rely on my own judgment. And it's a huge part of why I've not only been successful, but also seen through like the last three years, all the bullshit. Like I was like, okay, this is obviously a fraud because mm-hmm. like, I, I learned early on that I could assess truth for myself and mm-hmm. not base truth on what I thought was acceptable socially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How most people think, right? Right. Right. Yeah. And you've done a good job of doing this with me as, as we've been working together where, you know, you'll say like, and others have said this to me too, like in therapy where I sort of casually tell a story like you just did. And, and they're like, dude, you know, like, you know, that's really fucked up. Right. Like, so I get it now you're this adult, like, and and even maybe, you know, at an early age, to some degree, you kind of understood these things that you were learning. But the truth is, is that even if these horribly painful experiences, you know, get so embodied that it that it it, it really does teach you, right? Like it's the best thing to happen because you really felt it at a deep level. When you're a kid, it's fucking like painful. It's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. Hell, yeah. And it's well, okay, good, yeah. good. Yeah. I wanted to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, so I'm gonna get to that because it's true. Yeah. Um, the other lesson that neglectful parents gave me is they never mixed their abuse with love right i think most people uh, i know most people even if they had parents who really you know did their best and did well still were probably at a, at a minimum didn't meet their needs in a lot of ways if not were you know abusive to, even if it was totally unintentional like i don't think my parents ever woke up as a time to abuse tucker today it was, it was never about that right mm-hmm. it was just that they were broken and abused and they didn't deal with any of their own issues and it flowed downhill on me but the cool part about they were so neglectful they never pretended really to care and so i never got the intuitive unconscious message that to be loved you have to accept abuse Mm. right Mm. and and i think a lot of people do i mean i know my wife had to deal with that issue as as she's going through her therapy is that her parents were in a lot of ways really fantastic and then in other ways were pretty horribly abusive didn't realize it at the time and so for her love and abuse can often be mixed up and intertwined and that's been difficult for her to unpack i didn't have that that issue Right. And so it was like what that allowed me to do once I really got into therapy and started looking at my issues was I was able pretty quickly to see them for who they were. Mm. And, you know, of course, at first I was angry. I had to go through the normal progression, but like I didn't have to unconvince myself that they were actually great people. Right. Or, you know, they, they never pretended they were great parents they never really fed me the narrative that they were great which a lot of people do and nor did they love me a lot and so it was like i didn't have to unpack all of that first mm-hmm. i could basically just see them for who they were and then start feeling all the feelings from that that i hadn't as a child that were overwhelmed mm-hmm. right which is exactly what you were talking about mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean it, it's it's an interesting perspective again that you can get after doing all the work that you've done to see that in fact like it wasn't as confusing for you it wasn't quite as 
tangled up. But, you know, the flip side of that is like, it's sort of just like straight, <laughs> you know, like tough, hard, like, and so tell me about you as a kid then, like what happens as a result of, of you experiencing this neglect, who are you, what kind of shit do you get into and what do you yeah. like then? So this is one of those fields, man. I wish more people understood. I wish was talked about more because I didn't understand sort of how neglect plays out psychologically in kids. And I learned over the last 10 years, I really dove deep on my therapy journey first with, you know, talk therapy and then psychedelic medicine and other modalities. I, I realized like there's a ton of research on this and there's a really well-established understanding of how various forms of abuse play out behaviorally with children and then in with adults. And it's not widely understood or known. Um, and it, it, it like, it was frustrating to me as I learned this, I'm like, people have known this shit for 30 years. Like, what? <laughs> no one tell me. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So it's a great question. So, uh, generally speaking, so th there was a, a, a great study called the, the adverse childhood effects study, the ACE study. And I, like, I forget, it was done on thousands of kids over multiple decades. And it's one of the, the most uh, rigorous studies on childhood trauma ever done. And one of the core findings of the study, which blew a lot of people's minds and kind of led to an entire review of how the psych psychological profession looked at trauma was when they looked at kind of the, the, what kids went through and what their life outcomes were. They expected that the the sexually abused kids would be the worst, have the worst, the hardest life, you know, the worst life outcomes physically would be next. And, you know, like they looked at abuse and trauma as a physical thing, less than an emotional and mental thing. Right. Mm -hmm. It turns out that's not correct. What the ACE study found was that the kids who had the worst life outcomes were the ones that were neglected. Mm. You separate everything out. And don't get me wrong. Kids who were sexually and physically abused definitely suffered adverse effects. Mm -hmm. But if they were sexually or physically abused but not neglected, they were almost as a group universally better off than the kids who were just neglected, which is mm -hmm. insane to think about. I did not have any understanding of how difficult neglect is on kids. Even more than like verbal abuse, right? Like you're stupid or all that sort of stuff, which is, don't get me wrong, that's not healthy. That's toxic for kids, but it is actually worse for kids to not say anything than to be like mean. Most outcomes for most kids, being mean and engaged leads to better outcomes for the kids than not engaging at all. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it on an evolutionary level, that actually does make sense because think about like how weak and useless and vulnerable a child is the only reason children exist is because someone takes care of them mm -hmm. right and so so the attachment style the, your attachment to your caregivers or parents is of primary utmost importance to a literal survival for children and so like once like that study kind of set a whole category of research off and the book if you i know you know this book but if your readers don't there's a book called the body keeps the score by bessel van der kirk that does a great job kind of reviewing the 30 years of research he's one of the re main researchers on this he's like a I forget like a psychiatrist at bu um, or something like that and and he's one of the main trauma researchers who like this study and other studies like was like oh we, we got this whole field we need to look at 
And so what I think is happening now, because it's happened to me, is a lot of people like you and I, people who are quote unquote normal, middle class, who didn't grow up with a narrative of abuse, like other people had it worse. A lot of people like that have realized is that like, I'm totally miserable. I hurt all the time and I'm lonely and I'm all this sort of... I'm rich and you know I, I got money. I got all the th- the external things I'm supposed to have, and my life is horrible and I feel horrible. And so over the last 10, 20 years, I think a lot of people have woken up to and gone looking for answers. And the answers that a lot of people, a lot of people realizing the answers are lay in their past, right? And they lay with the trauma that happened to them. Now here's the thing: there was a period I think in our history where kind of this came up. Are you old enough to remember all the recovered memory court cases in the eighties and stuff like the sexual, right? So uh, like, yes, yes, yes. A lot of this stuff came up then. And I feel like, and then like also the God's honest truth is I think that the psychedelic revolution in the sixties and the recovered memory stuff in the eighties were sort of attempts for people to he- understand and bring up and heal the trauma and the tools and the understanding, I think weren't there, but now in the 2000s and 2010s and definitely in the 20s the understanding is there and the tools are there and so i happen to be one of i think the earlier adopters at least that talked about this publicly that not only took advantage of of understand i understood the research i i did a pretty good talk therapy and then used other tools like psychedelic medicine to get to why am i feeling so horrible why am i lonely and sad even though everything in my life is objectively pretty great, right? Why do I still feel this way? And then the answer for me and the answer for a lot of people has been, it's not that you, you going through trauma makes you or going through trauma automatically makes you sad. Cause there are a lot of people who suck. Like I know dudes who went to war and came out of it fine. Like literally like I, like a guy's buddy of mine, Clay Martin's coming tomorrow to train me. And like, he spent 20 years in the global war on terror and did a lot of very tumultuous stuff and saw friends die. And he dealt with that fine because trauma is not what, what happens to you. It's how you feel, how you take that, how you deal with the emotions from, from traumatic act, potentially traumatic actions in the face of empathic witness. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Clay was able to process those actions because he has a narrative around it. He, you know, had a, a group around him that helped him. And it was like, okay, yeah, like these are traumatic things, but I chose this. I want this. I process this. I'm good. But as a kid, for me, for example, I didn't understand the neglect, the, the abandonment and the loneliness I felt as a kid, the emotions from that, the shame, the grief. Mm-hmm. The fear, right? I had no empathic witness, right? No parent or parent or caregiver who could help reflect those emotions back, help me process them, give you know, help me modulate my emotions by by literally holding me tight. It's what a, why a mother holds the child tightly. One of the things that's going on is a child learns to emotionally regulate off the mom, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had none of that. Mm-hmm. And so what I had to do. One of the ways of dealing with that is to essentially turn off those emotions, to close them off and push them away. The problem with that, and it, you can do that. You can, it's called dissociation. You can disassociate from your emotions. The problem with that is that to push away the sadness and the grief and the fear, you kind of have to turn off all emotions and you have to kind of stop feeling. 
And it wasn't until literally I was about, I'm 48 now, I was 43. I, when I first did MDMA therapy that I actually really felt deep emotions. I hadn't, since I was a kid, I had not felt, I'd felt emotions. Like I yeah. wasn't a sociopath, but I was feeling 10 or 20% of what was what i was capable of and i can tell you very clearly because i when the first time i did mda i was married and i had two kids and i loved my wife and kids with everything i had and as soon as that mdma hit me it felt like my love went from on a scale of one to ten a two to a ten mm -hmm. i don't love didn't increase mm -hmm. what increased was my capacity to feel my emotions yeah Let's come back to that because I, I want to talk about that work. And obviously, you've done a lot of work. You have a lot of knowledge around the psychological aspects of the work, the trauma. I think you and I share that work. A lot of people are doing that work now. Things like Body Keeps the Score and, and you know a lot of the modalities are, fortunately, for the most part, you know, being pretty widely adopted now, but I'm still curious to hear more about what that looked like for you. Not, not from like a psychological aspect, you know, not from a diagnosis, like disassociation, but, but really like, so then what was little Tucker doing because of those things? And I, I get like, as an adult, but I just want to know, like, what were you up to? Were you getting in trouble? Were you, were you a shitty student? You know, like, tell me about like what you were into. And so it, it depends on the age range, right? So the first thing I'm going to tell you, if any of your listeners are wondering, or even have a lot of people, I was the same way. Start talking about this stuff. They'll be like, oh yeah, like my parents weren't perfect, but everything's great. I didn't have any trauma. And then I'll ask them, how much of your childhood do you remember? Right. And then you'll get like this look like, oh shit. <laughs> I know for me, there's large swaths of my childhood I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, which doesn't mean I was actively, it's not like I was being beat every day when I got home from school. Right. But uh, I was so disconnected and dissociated. Bro, I can't really remember anything about second grade. I can only vaguely remember where I went to second grade. We we moved around a lot. I don't think I went to the same school twice until it's like fourth or fifth grade. But like, um, there's large swaths I don't remember. So that mm -hmm. should give you a good indication, number one, of what my childhood was like. But the clearest memories I have of childhood, well, the clearest memories are not of my parents. They're of my godparents. Like, the only reason I think I'm not a horrific sociopath is because I got super lucky. And I had two godparents who were the most wonderful, loving, caring people. Like they, you could hold them up as like the idealized either parents or grandparents because they were a little older. And, and I, I, when I say I got lucky, I mean, very literally, I was born. My parents lived in Atlanta. My dad was constantly traveling with his business. My mom was a literal flight attendant. My mom would literally leave me for weeks at a, at a time. And our neighbors were the, this, um, a couple named Bill and Jane March, and just randomly they were our neighbors and they had just, they had three kids. The last one had just left. So they were like empty nesters, didn't have grandkids yet. And they were like the sweetest, nicest people. And so they would take me when my mom would leave. And we lived there for, until I was about a year and a half. 
or, or two years old. And every piece of love and affection and caring I remember early in my life is from them. Everything. And like, if I hadn't gotten that feedback and that, that emotional modulation, I'm very, very confident I would be like worth a bunch <laughs> of money screwing people and, you know, like all that. I'd be one of those dudes, right? All right. So, so tell me, and I think it's really important what you just said. And I appreciate the, the honesty, the truth in that, like, you just don't remember you and I've talked enough, like, you know, yeah, I had that experience too. And actually in writing a memoir, a book, you can force yourself to try to remember some things. And it's amazing. Even actually it's it, it, sometimes, and they, and they don't, I mean, sometimes, you know, things do, but, but it's funny, you know, even in doing this podcast and asking people to start at childhood a lot, you almost always when we're done, and this is, you know, people that might, you know, have varying degrees of trauma or none at all, you know, so yeah. they think at least. Right. But usually at the end, people go, God, I, I just hadn't even thought about that in, in forever. And so there's so much, even if you're in a normal situation, you don't remember, and then absolutely traumatized, you know, disassociated kids, just large, large chunks of your life don't don't remember. And so tell me what you do, like whatever the first memories that you got, doesn't have to be first memory. Kid, yeah. right. So I actually went through this with my therapist when I was in talk therapy. The my literal first memory as a child. I, I don't remember how old I was, six to nine months probably, was my mom was holding me. And her and my dad were having like an intense screaming argument in the kitchen of our house in Atlanta. And I I was slipping down. She's holding me, you know, like, like, you know, like a mom does on her side. And my my leg was pinched and she had a belt on or something like a metal buckle. And my leg was pinched in there. And I was like, I went ballistic because like that hurt. And then the 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 screaming and the yelling, and the trauma of that. I, re I remember how. I mean, you, you have kids, you know, when a kid goes ballistic, like I, like that was my first memory is of like that deep fear, right. And pain, mm -hmm. almost all the rest of my memories from China, and I can go through the ones I remember, but bro, they're almost all really like that. They're sad and lonely, lonely. If I, like, if I had to pick out a theme the theme of my memories from childhood is loneliness. Mm -hmm. And maybe even just like, let's fast forward to like high school, Tucker. I guess I'm trying to figure out and understand like, what kind of shit were you into? I get, you know, these things happen and it's sad, it's lonely, you know, you're disassociated. So, so how does that impact who you end up being? being in the world at those years, in that kind of teenage years, what kind of trajectory does your life go on? So I had, a, I had a kind of a weird childhood in that regard because I was a decent athlete and I was really smart. Um, and so like, I was never like, I was never, you know, I was in all the smart kid classes, but I wasn't like a loser nerd, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I was athletic enough and kind of cool enough i guess that no one picked on me and i was you know an athlete like but like i also wasn't in any of the cool kid groups mainly also because i didn't like those kids 
Like I, yeah, I went to public school for two years and then I went to boarding school for two years. I can hardly remember. I like, I don't talk to any kids from either of the high schools I went to ever because pretty much all of them sucked <laughs> and they still suck as people, right? Like at least as far as I know, maybe there's some great ones that I just didn't know them or whatever. Sure. Like that's entirely possible, but, but the ones I knew and the ones I talked to, I don't like who are like, I had a weird, I don't want to say I was mature. I think that's the wrong word, but I was very, very smart from an early age, you know, just academically horsepower smart, you know, like I had a, IQ is, but really high, you know, the, the meme of like the, the drooling guy and then the, the spreadsheet brain and the Jedi, like that meme, right. And the, and the Jedi and the drooling guy always have the same, I'm the, like IQ wise, I'm, I'm on the, the Jedi guy side. And I also figured out early how to game school. It's like, Brian, I know like you, I know a million entrepreneurs just like you who are super smart objectively and super accomplished and they're super insecure about school because they did badly at school. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and they, they still have the idea in their head that, that good at school means smart and valid and bad at school means dumb and invalid. Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you how many dudes like you have walked with them. Like, no, 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 no. You can feel that way if you want, but school is just a game and it's just, literally, it's just a game. And when you, yeah. it's like entrepreneurship is, and once yeah. you figure out the game and how to hack it, it's super, super easy. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be like, like, well, what's the game? I'm like, it really all boils down to, you're not actually looking for the answers. You have to model the mind of your teacher mm -hmm. and, or what they're teaching. To win that game, you just have to model their mind and spit back at them what they think the answer is. Mm -hmm. And I, bro, I, a thousand times dudes like you have said, like their jaws drop open. They're like, oh my God, that's exactly right. How did I never see that? I'm like, I just, for whatever reason, I think because I was so abandoned as a kid and I learned to think on my own as a kid and I knew adults were stupid for the most part and lazy and useless as a kid, I just realized that. And I was also smart. And so I hacked the game of school early. Right. And then I did, I always did really well at school. You know, I went to top 10 university, top 10 law school. I got academic scholarships as a white dude to the law school, which is impossible, but I did it. And like, you know, I hacked the LSAT. Like I just figure out, oh, okay, this is not a test of intelligence. It's a test of how well you take the test. It's mm -hmm. so like, I was in this weird position of being good at a lot of high status things, but I didn't emotionally connect with almost anyone. And then now, usually kids like me will kind of be like what you did, right? Like in high school, like uh, get into maybe drugs and partying and mm -hmm. all that. Do that in high school. And mm -hmm. the reason, there's two reasons. One is I wasn't insecure, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the kids that, that get into that world, they get into it out of compensation and insecurity. And like, it's not like I don't have any insecurities, but mm -hmm. like I was, I didn't have those issues in high school, mm -hmm. right? But then also... Everyone around me, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I totally bought the drug, the, remember D.A.R.E. drug abuse resistance education? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Totally bought the D.A.R.E. narrative about losers using drugs. And I'll tell mm -hmm. you why. Because growing up, my mom hung out with a lot of people who kind of did drugs and her brother went to jail for selling pot and all this stuff. And they were, mm -hmm. and so like, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be like those people. And they were, they all just happened to use pot and whatever. So I I bought the dare narrative because it actually matched up with my reality. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of kept me away from those groups. And I'm, I was never going to be like, I looked at the nerds, 
the same way as like the druggy party kids. Like mm-hmm. those people are fucking losers, and I'm not hanging out with them. But then yeah. I thought the popular kids, like all did all the athletes, like whatever, hung out with them. Like they're fucking losers too. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'm sort of, I'm sort of struck by like, I think it's pretty unique and rare. I don't know. It just feels like it's foreign to me. They, you know, you can have all that neglect, all that abuse, and be able to still have some security that you had an inner strength that allowed you to use your intelligence to perform in school to see that you know people were bullshit to not get sucked into some sort of thing along the way because of a hole that had to be there no but see remember what i told you my the gift my parents gave me Mm -hmm. was they were so neglectful. It forced me to be extremely independent mm-hmm. from a young age. And so, th- what? Where does confidence come from? Do you know? I like, mean, how does someone get confidence in I, anything? I, I I don't know that there's one way to do. No, that. there is one way. There is one way. All right, tell me what it is. Demonstrated performance. When we talk about real estate, I see your entire energy shift, mm-hmm. and the reason is because you've done it. You've accomplished a lot and you know that field. And so the way you talk about it and the way you think about it's fundamentally different than like other fields you don't know, right? Because you have demonstrated performance. Now I can understand self-confidence. There are other factors that can, that can influence. I I get what you're saying there, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, But as a general rule, confidence comes from, especially in areas, demonstrated performance. And what, what my parents neglect did is that it forced me Bro, I can't tell you how many times the only reason I had dinner is because I cooked it for myself or things I mm. forced me to rely so much on myself that I knew from a very young age that I was capable and I could do things because I had done it. Well, I think that's remarkable, really. And you're right on the demonstrated performance thing. But what what I know also happens for a lot of people is when they're six, nine months old and their foot is stuck in the belt and they're in pain and they're not getting what they need. They take on a story, maybe six, nine months is too young to do it. But at some point, even when the dog barks at the little kid, the the kid says, I'm not safe. Right. So there are these sort of early childhood embodied experiences that can, you know, really limit your ability to even step into situations where you can get the performance, you know, you get the experience. So many people are, don't have the comfort to say, I can game this, fuck those guys, or I'm not doing drugs. They, they don't have that because they were so neglected. You know, you just didn't do that. You somehow found another path. A hundred percent. I'm only talking about my path, not the only, like given the right. exact same set of circumstances, other people could and would find other adaptive mechanisms, right? Mm. So the the way I did it is not the only way or the right way or whatever, right? No, I, but it's like, a great it, way. I mean, it's awesome that that's how, how it, you were able to navigate it. Right. But it comes with a price though, right? Yeah. So okay. I'm not so talking about like, oh, you know, everything was the price of extreme independence and resilience is a lack of connection to everyone around. You. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why I was like this weird loner in high school, mm-hmm. because even though I could connect with anyone I want, if I wanted someone to be my friend, they would be like, it's not that hard, but I didn't want that. I say I want in quotes, 
because by that point I had already shut down that inside part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I went from like, as a kid, you know, I want and need my mom, but she's not here. I got to figure this out. By the time I got to high school, it's like, fuck anybody. I don't need anybody else. Right. Right. I didn't manifest that outwards. That wasn't, it wasn't a combative outwards thing. It was just how I went through the world. And so that lockdown in some bro, I'm still paying the price for that. Yeah, right? yeah, I get it. I get it. I appreciate you saying that. It makes sense, right? Not not everybody sucked, but like, yeah, I mean, you know, people can suck. And, you know, when you say, you know, fuck it, I just need to survive and do my own thing, you know, you're gonna pay a price. So tell me, you know, you you go one of the things it sounds like you do is you decide, fuck everybody. I got this. I know what I need to do. And you go out and you start performing at a pretty high level, law school and on and on. So so what happens next, you know, as you start to kind of enter into your career, tell me about what happens there. So I did really well at school and I fell into the kind of the, one of the worst traps for a young guy, which is the, I knew nothing but thought I knew everything. Mm. Right. And so like, that's another price to pay for extreme independence Mm -hmm. is you don't, you haven't developed both either the humility or the relationships to help you kind of see around corners Mm -hmm. and wake fucked up. And and the reality, I remember saying this to my therapist, like I never had a mentor. I listed to this day. I've never had a mentor. Mm -hmm. And one time she looked at me and she goes, Tucker, I don't think you could tolerate one. Mm -hmm. You're probably right (laughs) (laughs) like i'm definitely at 48 um i'm way way better at listening to other people and at at humility and all that sort of stuff but that was a horror i mean i was not when i started scribe i was not in that space at 38 like Mm -hmm. i was i did not have that Mm -hmm. and so uh, and if i had things would have gone a lot smoother and been a lot easier for me and so now finally in my late 40s when i'm kind of past the mentor stage i have the humility and the the self-awareness to go to someone, even like, like when I talk about real estate with you, Alec, I listen mm-hmm. to what you say and I'm like, I take it seriously and I'm like, ask questions because you, you've spent your life in that field and I know nothing. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like this guy has a lot to teach me, right? Even that idea, I wouldn't have at 38, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I wouldn't have dismissed you. I just would have gone in and figured it out myself. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so as I, as I kind of went in college, but I, I fell into the, I know nothing. I, I, I thought I knew everything, but I knew nothing trap. And so in, in the, when did I graduate? 95 from high school, 98 from college, 01 from law school. So that was definitely one of the heights of the master of the universe phase of cultural narrative. And so uh, like, I, I thought to be a badass, I, like I needed to go to, to iBanking management consulting or law school and so uh you know i interviewed with ibanks out of university of chicago like all the big ones and, and like those people were working like 100 hours a week like 120 mm-hmm. hours a week like all of their waking hours uh, just about except like they they work 12 hours a day and then go do blow and screw hookers at night and then like <laughs> they wouldn't even go home and like they'd show back up at the office at 3 a.m. and sleep for two hours. And I'm like, this, that, no, that looks horrible. Mm-hmm. And, and then management consultants, I'm like, I, yeah, you know, I, I, McKinsey, and I interview with all of them in Bain. And I'm like, you guys are all full of crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nonsense. Like you don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the idea that a 23 year old me is going to go into GM and tell them how to restructure something 
and just make stuff up. I'm like, that's even I'm like, that's really stupid. And so I ended up in law school also because it was three more years of school when I was really mm-hmm. good at school mm-hmm. and, uh, and I got money for it. And so I, you know, I, I loved law school because mm-hmm. uh, finally in law school, I had peers, right? Mm-hmm. So I went to the University of Chicago. Like I was by the time 18, 19, I got there. I'm I, like a young guy. I'm pretty outgoing, pretty cool, at least, you know, relative to 18 year olds, like bursting at the seams for social life. But I also thought I was a genius. And so the reason I picked the University of Chicago is because I thought, well, this is the smartest people in the world. And it was mm-hmm. a professor I mean, at the time. There were like mm-hmm. 17 Nobel laureates there or something crazy. Mm-hmm. And like, um, I'm like, all right, let's see how smart I am. And I realized two things super quick. I was very smart, maybe not as smart as I thought, but I, like uh, pretty quickly, I'm like, okay, academia is no real measure of intelligence. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like I, that's when I realized, man, this this game is kind of fraudulent and nonsense. Mm-hmm. And then I also showed up, and I was like the coolest kid in my dorm at 18. I'm like, this is not. I don't think it should be like this. Like, I'm pretty mm-hmm. cool, but I'm not cool enough to be the coolest kid at a college at as a freshman. Like, that's <laughs> a different level of cool, and I don't have that level. And I was, I was just humble enough to realize that that probably shouldn't mm-hmm. be. So I, 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 I didn't like the UFC a lot. I graduated in three years to get out early. And then I got to Duke and it was like all the smartest dudes from a bunch of state schools were there with me. I think mm-hmm. the smartest guy from UVA, the smartest guy from Pitt, the smartest guy from Kansas or, you know, the top tier guys. Mm-hmm. And they were like, cool, mm-hmm. but also smart. And I never hung out with dudes like that. Mm-hmm. So it was the first time there's like eight or nine of us. And we joked that we were like the law school fraternity. And those guys were real. The, the, the all the guys in my books that I wrote about it, those dudes, those were probably the most important relationships I'd had in my life. Other than my godparents to that point in my life, because I finally had real peers. And those dudes were also pretty patient with me in a lot of ways. Cause like, you know, like, you ever meet someone who, who who's maybe very self-educated and they'll come in and they like pronounce things super weird because they've only ever read stuff and they don't hear. And like, I was kind of like that socially uh-huh. or like in certain ways I was fucking amazing and hilarious. <laughs> and in other ways I do things and my buddies would be like, what's wrong with you? Why right. Did you do that? Because I was essentially, uh, this one girl told me, she goes, Tucker, what, you're so compelling because you're so feral. Like she's like, I've never met someone it's like at, at like your level of intelligence and 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 accomplishment who's also pretty feral. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because of kind of how I was raised. And yeah, yeah. I came and those two things almost never go together. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was able to to kind of navigate that space. And I had good friends who kind of helped me navigate it. And um and it law school was very important for me socially. I got regulated, you know, in a good way. Right. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. uh, what well, I went through a crucible of social education, and my friends were sort of that crucible, and it was so beneficial for me in so many ways. Then from there, you know, like, uh, well, I got fired from being a lawyer pretty quickly, and so I didn't do that. And the books, that story's in my first book. And then um, my dad fired me from the family business after six. Mm-hmm. I went to work with my dad. He owns a bunch of restaurants in South Florida. Mm-hmm. Fired me after six months, and then it was like, okay, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. And the whole writing emails to my this is after we graduated i was writing emails to that same group of friends about all the funny stuff i would do we were all writing emails right uh-huh and mine were pretty funny i yeah. not even funny to the group honestly but they were they were you know in the top two or three and my buddy he's like dude you've been fired from like the only things you train for but these emails are the funniest <laughs> things I've ever read. this is what you should be doing mm-hmm. and i was like 
what? No, I'm not a writer. Only bitches are writers. He's like, mm-hmm. well, eh, maybe you're a bitch. <laughs> mm-hmm. then, and so that's kind of how my writing career took off is, mm-hmm. is I was doing something for fun for me to make my friends laugh. And I, I never occurred to me that other people would think was funny other than my nine friends from law school who I was super close to. And um, one of them kind of was like, like showed me, like I, I, I failed my way out of the two things that I um, trained for. And then like, he's like, yeah, dude, I think this is your path. And I took it and it, and it ended up working. It's interesting. I, I love hearing the path to it. And, you know, I think that socialization piece is, is also, you know, as you know, no small thing, you know, but the, the, the pieces of the puzzle that got put in place along the way, yeah, that, that's why I like to start where we started and, and kind of hear how it all unfolds, including, you know, the stories and, and attachments and identities that we take on along the way, only for you to find out through these now buddies you know, that you had never had before real friends who you related to and got, who got you enough to go, dude, like you're funny, you're a writer. And you now all of a sudden you see yourself in a way that you never imagined. And that becomes your, your entire next, I don't know how many your life worth work. You know, it's, it's, it's incredible. Now the next two decades of my life were basically sprung out of that one conversation with yeah. uh, uh, with my buddy from law school well i i really don't think i would have ever seen myself in that way mm-hmm. uh, if you read my books like some of the funniest parts were written by this other guy who in the books uh, i call sling blade mm-hmm. and he went to an extremely different profession from writing and so like to me he was the measure of, of comedy like if I could be half as funny as him, he had a true talent for it. If he'd gone into this field, he would have been like, he would have crushed me. He was way better than me. That's the other funny weird, like, weird thing about it is like, I wasn't the best one in my friend group. I was just the one who did it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was good. Don't get me wrong, but I was not the best. So is I hope they serve beer and hell your first book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and it like pretty right away becomes a huge success, right? Yeah, I mean, sort of. It, it sold. It hit the New York Times bestseller list for the first two weeks, based off the back of my email list, because I had a really well-known site. Because I put my stories up on the internet for free before the book came out, and so I had a lot of fans, and they bought it. But I got no media coverage, and no one cared, and so it kind of fell off the sales, and it kind of went down all the way down to like five hundred in one week, which is mm. low for me. And then it started climbing back up because word of mouth, like, mm. took it, and then. It went back on the bestseller list in like May of 2007, mm-hmm. and then it stayed on for like five straight years. Mm. Uh, it's like, like if you look at like the top, the bestsellers, nonfiction bestsellers, like the longest run on the bestseller list. Mine is not number one, but it's in like the top ten or twenty. Mm. It was on for for six calendar years and for like little five literally straight years mm-hmm. in a row. Okay, so I, I know we're a little tight on time, and I want to make sure we we touch on kind of this this next part of your life here. So you tell me, w- what is most important that happens from the time you write this first book, you go on that ride, it's obviously a, a big success. What starts to come into your life that now really informs, you know, kind of how you're going to move forward with your career? Yeah, um, 
I mean, that's obviously its own podcast, right? But the, right. the, the thing was, as a dude, before you're successful, right? How do you define success? For me, it was fame. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for, for you, like, you know, it's successful real estate projects and wealth. What it doesn't, whatever field mm-hmm. you go, there's a measure for success. Yeah, it was money for me. Right. Okay. So, like, as soon as I, I had a, when I started, I had a met like a goal in mind. And before I even realized it, I, it felt like I was impossibly far away from the goal. And then almost overnight, I was way past the goal. It was mm-hmm. the right. thing. It was like, yeah. like, Wild. yeah, there going, going, going. It's like, this thing's never going to go. And then all of a sudden you're in, you're, you're in space. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like that for me. And then it was like, I got there, I got way past what I ever thought I needed for success. And for a while it was just like, this is amazing. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, get all in. And then like, once it all settled out, I was like five or 10% happier than before. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Cause you know, when you're poor and broken anonymous, you think like, oh, well, everything will be fine when I'm a success. Mm-hmm. And were better right like like having money is better than not having money but like <laughs> it was mm-hmm. not much better and then long long story and there was a movie made about my life that came out mm-hmm. before i was 34 like i couldn't have been i was on time magazine's 100 most influential list like all this nonsense i couldn't have been more rich and famous more girls than i could ever imagine that like literally would just show up to have sex with me like it was the craziest thing and like money and all this nonsense and uh like fixed everything in my life mm-hmm. like the got an amazing shape everything and i was like, again like it's better than before but like 10 maybe 15 percent happier than when i had nothing and was miserable mm-hmm. like, like this doesn't make sense mm-hmm. and then eventually i had the realization well the, the only thing left is me mm-hmm. you know if everything external is perfect Mm. The problems have to be internal. That's all that's left. Mm. And so that's when I really started my therapeutic journey, right? And it was stumbling and nonsense and silly at first. But then eventually I found psychoanalysis talk therapy and I found a good analyst after a lot of different ones. Mm-hmm. Found a good who was worked good with me. And then that was good. Like it helped me. But like again, I was only like 10% better than before. But I had a really clear understanding, like all this stuff with trauma and emotion. I didn't understand any of that. Mm-hmm. And she really kind of get a map of my mind. Mm-hmm. The problem with a map is that it's not like walking the territory. You know, a map mm-hmm. of Manhattan is cool, but you mm-hmm. can't, even the, the best map of Manhattan on earth, you've not been to Manhattan. You mm-hmm. just and that was kind of the thing I had to like start feeling my emotions. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't understand this at all. But like, I, I'm kind of reading about this and like, I, I remember just like hearing the words, but not getting it. And, and mm-hmm. look back, it's pretty clear. I was afraid. Mm-hmm. Like uh, th- this was a, a deep, this was my shadow at the time was mm-hmm. unfelt emotions. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. a, bit, a friend of mine did MDMA therapy and I saw the results. I saw yeah. him and I'm like, that's what I want. Like yeah. he was 10% happier. He was a radically happier, better person in all ways. Mm-hmm. And I, that is what I want. And then I, I kind of went in a little bit and, um, everything after that was my life has kind of like, there's two kind of major ways to divide up my life before and after my wife and before and after psychedelic therapy. Mm. 
and and probably the biggest radical change is before and after psychedelic therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, let's just you know kind of start to wrap up though with this piece because I've done that work too, and what's interesting about it is you know you can kind of intellectually think you know a lot of things you know you can have done a lot of work even you know a lot of psychotherapy and you could have really worked on yourself and made a lot of progress you had accomplished a lot you had achieved the success in money and fame you had done all the things right and you knew there was something still that you you wanted that you didn't have those weren't really the things and when you go into that work, when you go into that deep, deep work, you and I both through psychedelics, but you know, some people get there other ways. You can't unsee what you see. And it can be tough because it can really show you that that actually you didn't know shit. You hadn't you really, really deep down, like didn't get it, didn't have it, and now you do. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's both beautiful and incredibly insightful, but it could also be like, ow, whoa, I'm like yeah. way off from where I thought I was. So, um, if any of your listeners, like if they're thinking about psychedelic therapy, I have a great piece on my website, tuckermax.com. It's called the, you know, the beginner's guide to psychedelic medicine. I say this like 20 times in the piece and I cannot be more emphatic about it. If you decide to walk that road, and not just psychedelics, but if you decide to start doing deep work and face your shadow and start to feel your unfelt emotions and kind of dig deep into healing, it's going to get harder before it gets easier. Yeah. And in a lot of a lot of cases, it's going to get really hard. Way harder. Yeah. Like, I'm going to tell you about two, two and a half years ago. Yeah, two and a half. I got kind of to the bottom of my trauma. And for me, it was grief. Like, mm-hmm. without going into endless details, my mom didn't want. Mm-hmm. What's the core emotion if a child's rejected by the parents? Grief, right? I mean, there's fear and there's other mm-hmm. things, but like, my my parents provided for me, so I, I was never I I don't I didn't have a lot of fear in the turn to the survival type of fear. For me, for me, the core wound was uh, the core emotion from my mother wound was grief. Mm-hmm. And, um, bro, there were times that I thought when I really got into that, I got into the darkness and I looked into it and I sat in it and I felt it. I thought I was going to fucking die from grief. I thought I was going to die from it. Yeah. It feels like death. And, and actually it is, it's a part of you that that's dying that needs to, to kind of be let go but it's scary and it's painful and it hurts. And it, 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 you're right. I'm glad you emphasize the, the, how hard it is because it can be really, really overwhelmingly hard, you know, to the point of psychosis, you know, it, it's, it's dangerous and I'm a advocate, but, but really of doing it, you know, in a safe container, tell me with that bottom. Okay. How have you, and, and maybe this is a whole nother podcast. I know there's enough information to make it more than one, and maybe we'll do that. But tell me how you've rebuilt your life since then and kind of who is Tucker today? Yeah, this is what I did. That's why Tucker Carlson had me on. In a lot of ways, it's funny. I'm 180 degrees different, but really just on the, uh, maybe it is on the interiors too. Um, so I'm a married father of four. 
I'm like kind of a stay-at-home dad in certain ways. Like, I mean, I just sold, I sold my company a while ago. And so my focus now is the homestead we live on, building that out. You know, yeah, we got, I got a flock of sheep, a bunch. We have 54 sheep now and bees and eat chickens and egg laying chickens and, you know, livestock guard dogs and you know, on and on and on. So I, I, building that out and, and like, um, building that homestead and running it. And then, um, I homeschool one of my kids. Two of them go to, we started a school in dripping. We, um, a Waldorf out here. So two go to that Waldorf and one of them, he didn't have a class there because they don't have kids. So I homeschool him. I mean that my my family and my homestead are my focus now. You know, like yeah. I, I'm sure I'll start another business or have some other big project at some point. But mm-hmm. for right now, man, like I started my the deep healing part of my journey almost exactly five years ago. September 14th, 2018 was the first day I did uh, uh, psychedelic medicine, and then I'm kind of coming out of that phase. Uh, like I, I kind of got to I think most, if not all, of the the old unfelt feelings and I, I felt that stuff it's not like I, that doesn't mean i'm enlightened all mm-hmm. all that means is i've i've dealt with the baggage from my past yeah but like enlightenment's a different journey sure <laughs> sure sure it, yeah if you're going for enlightenment and all that it's much easier in fact it's a necessary part of the journey you kind of got to deal with the past first mm-hmm. along the way i kind of decided to just deal with the past first before i i i worried about raising my level of consciousness and all that which you do inevitably as you deal with your trauma and stuff Mm. and so like um i mean i got plenty of stuff to improve still but my days generally now are just so calm Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and grateful and satisfied um that like i live in a state now that i think i would have considered utterly blissful 10 years ago mm-hmm. and that's my steady state now mm-hmm. um, most part it doesn't mean you don't mm-hmm. get angry you don't have bad days or mm-hmm. if, right yeah but, um i i mean i have i i, I created the life i want mm-hmm. good for you amazing a great place to land and i'll as your friend just poke you a tiny bit here at the end which is I look forward to you reading the story in your memoir, which you are going to write. I know you are, but it's it's a lot more there that, that, that everybody would love to learn that version of Tucker. I think it's going to be big and I look forward to write that. So yeah, Tucker, thanks for taking the time and sharing your journey and just for the journey you've, you've been on and landing in that place. But just uh, have a lot of respect and compassion and and love for your for your journey and for you. So appreciate you taking the time to do this. Awesome, be with you, and uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thank you, brother. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.